again. I'd like to welcome you to this workshop on titled Why Am I Burned Out and more importantly, what can I do about it? My name's Gary Morris. I'm uh, Vice President of the Community Mental Health Center in St. Louis and I've done some work in burnout for about 20 years along with a lot of work on uh, community treatment, like a sort of community treatment and outreach teams and such. So I'm glad to be here today with you and really appreciate the uh, invitation from uh, UCLA and the LA County folks to be able to come and, and talk with you because I understand this is a very important issue to many of you just as it is to providers all across the United States. Um, what I'd like to do is just kind of by way of getting started is talk about uh, see if we could come to three shared agreements. Uh, the first one is really kind of like they say in Vegas, what uh, happens here stays here in the sense of that there might be times when people share a little bit about what are a source of burnout and for somebody it might be something like some of the administrative requirements at your organization or maybe interaction with a peer or a supervisor. So we'd like it to be a safe place. So whatever you share here stays here. Of course, you're willing to, uh, you're able to self-disclose yourself, but uh, really to be able to keep a, a sense of confidentiality from whatever people share here uh, among the participants. A second part is uh, we're going to be going through actually like a, a lot of different practices after some introduction, many of which are um, going to be familiar, some of which will be new. And what I invite you to do as much as possible is if you can really try and engage and try those practices. One or two of them may seem a little bit strange or a little bit awkward, not so much in this workshop because this is an abbreviated one for about three hours and it's the usual one is twice that long. But I'd ask you to kind of come in with a spirit of, uh, of being involved in embracing that. At the same time, I also respect you know people's personal comfort and choice levels, so don't do anything that you really don't want to do. Uh, and uh, if we had time and if everybody shared, I'm sure we'd hear a lot of uh, interesting stories, not only about first jobs, but sometimes about worse jobs. Uh, my hope, though, is from this workshop and from everything else in your life that you're able to make your current job one of your best jobs because work is really important mm -hmm. and the work that you do for people that you serve is critically important. That being said, that uh, that's sometimes a, a challenge. That work tends to be the one of the highest levels of stress in people's lives. About 70% of Americans identify work as a huge major stress in their life. And on this particular table, which was a survey that was done actually of uh, a few hundred women, asked people to rate from their happiest activities down to their least happy activities. And in the interest of modesty, we'll skip the one at the very top of the list. Um, but you'll see that work is the second to lowest rated activity in terms of happiness right above commuting to work in that way. So work is often not a lot of fun for people and that it can be even more difficult for people like yourself who are caregivers there's these quotes by Martin Seligman, a, a well-known psychologist who was the president of the American Psychological Association at one time. And he said that doing this kind of work can be a real drag. 
And as you work with people who have a lot of severe issues, like schizophrenia and depression and alcoholism, that it can be helpful to them, but it can be, uh, it doesn't do much for the well-being of providers. Now that's not a very rosy picture from the uh, gentleman who's been called the, the father of positive psychology. Um, but it does indicate that <coughs> burnout is a really major issue um, for, for many people in this field, particularly in community mental health. Just to be clear, when we're talking about burnout, that there's different terms, but uh, usually it's best described and from a lot of research as having three major components. One is emotional exhaustion, which probably needs no other explanation. It's just that feeling of being used up. A second feature is uh, depersonalization, which is also sometimes called cynicism which is sometimes you can hear where people begin to get kind of critical and cynical about the people they work with, the uh, people that you serve or colleagues. A third one is a, uh, a really a diminished sense of personal accomplishment. Kind of like, put in my eight hours today or nine hours or 10 hours, but what did I do? What did I accomplish? I don't feel like I accomplished anything. So to be burned out, you don't necessarily need to have all of those three components, but those are common aspects. And there's some research, it's not necessarily um, holds true for everyone, but sometimes there's this progression. People first feel emotionally exhausted, then they feel some of the cynicism, and then they feel that lack of personal accomplishment. I'd like you to... Um, also, just kind of take a moment in your handouts there, and on the handouts, there's a number of different worksheets. We won't be referring to them all today, but we'll be using a number of them. But there's one in there that has that thermometer rating. If you could just take a moment, and for your own self, it's not, not for me, it's not for your supervisor, it's not for your agency, but if you could just kind of think about and rate, where would you say you are right now in terms of your own level of burnout? And then also, indicate where would you like to be in a month or three months or six months from now? Where would you like to be in terms of your level of burnout? What you wrote is private, it's your information. Um, but again, we know that feeling stressed out, feeling burned out are really epidemic in the community mental health field as we'll talk about in a little bit more detail in a, in a few minutes. And to me, that's a, I mean, a sad thing that people came into this field really often with really good hearts and good intentions and a desire to do something. And it's a, it's a sad thing that if the stresses and the demands of the day and the work kind of overwhelm your own particular passions and the energies that brought you into doing the work that you're doing. You know, as, as you may also think that one of the most important developments in the last 25 or so years in the community mental health uh, areas, but really been that development of a recovery-oriented philosophy that recognizes that people with severe mental illness as well as uh, substance abuse disorders are really much more than their disorders, that they have that possibility of living big lives, the ones that are have meaning and fulfillment and uh, satisfaction. And I think that's been critically important. A part that isn't recognized so much is that all of you, providers, are people too. 
and you also deserve to be able to live your life that has meaning and satisfaction and being able to live out your dreams and your passions. Joseph Campbell um, is a, was a very wise ind individual said once that uh, most people sometimes get so busy and so caught up in the demands of the day that they really forget who they are and what they intended for their lives. Let's try and remember that though. So what I would like to do is ask you to take uh, just a moment. If you're comfortable doing so, you can close your eyes, but you don't have to close your eyes. But I'd like you to just to kind of think for a moment about what were your dreams, what were your passions that brought you in to doing the work that you're doing today. So our goals for the work workshop today are to really try and give you some information, and not only information, but some uh, skills and tools and practices that would help to reduce or prevent burnout. And not only that, but it's more than about avoiding the negative. It's about how can you also increase your own kind of well-being and satisfaction and meaning and purpose. Our time together today have given you a little bit of background information and a little bit of conceptual framework. But when I get done kind of with that introductory, what we want to do is spend most of the time kind of, again, sharing some different kind of practices and getting you to uh, some of those to be able to do some uh, exercise, to be able to try those on. And then at the end of the time, really be able to spend a little bit of time for you to kind of think about, okay, we're exposed to kind of this buffet of different ideas and practices. What is it that you want to try that can help raise you from where you are now in that thermometer to a higher place? Just a little bit of, starting with a little bit of background, as I mentioned before, that burnout is incredibly prevalent. Uh, studies range widely, often depending partly on methodological issues, but anywhere from one out of five to two out of uh, three mental health providers have significant burnout. The other thing that's been found is, you've probably heard of kind of the rules of a third before. Same kind of thing kind of holds with burnout. Slightly different, as you can see by those numbers. But if you don't do anything to help that, about a little more than a third kind of stay the same level of burnout, a little bit under a third kind of get better on their own, and a little bit under a third get worse, which is all the reason, again, to try and do something about it. And there's a number of problems that come with burnout. Some of those are, as you see up there, that uh, Staff who are burned out often have physical, somatic kind of issues, also have their own mental health or substance abuse issues, have difficulty sometimes in relationships, both at home as well as on the job because of the burnout they're experiencing. It's also uh, negative issues in terms of uh, the people that we serve who then sometimes feel like the person's not really there, doesn't really care about them, some quality of care issues, and then for organization, it's a problem because it also contributes to high turnover, creates a lot of costs, a lot of inefficiencies. Also just mentioned that within all this that um, burnout is clearly a kind of stress-related uh, disorder, and here are some, a lot of research that shows the other kind of effects of, that stress have on us. 
on our mood, on our physical health. Interestingly, there's uh, a lot of evidence in terms of how it can also affect things like uh, not only our immune functioning, but major illnesses in terms of cardiac and even some cancers are influenced negatively by stress, which again, speaks to the importance of being able to find some ways to deal with stress and deal with burnout. Uh, we're talking about burnout with mental health providers, but I also want to put this just in a cultural context, and that is that there's a lot of burnout in all kinds of fields. And at the same time, there's more and more people are spending more time working than ever before. While they're working more, they're experiencing less satisfaction from their work, and they're feeling less happy and uh, a lower quality of life. And that burnout is somehow kind of tied into this larger thing that's happening. Um, part of the conceptual framework for this is that burnout is similar to other stress-related uh, mental health kind of concerns. And what we want to do about it is we want to help increase your awareness. We want you to be able to learn some skills about how to deal with it. And then to also develop your own kind of personal recovery or relapse prevention plan about how to deal with burnout. Uh, just a, a little bit of background information about it is I've been doing work in kind of burnout reduction and prevention for about 20 years and uh, sometimes just kind of more training workshops. We've also done some research about it uh, about a dozen years ago. I also kind of started working with some other people, Michelle Sawyers and some other colleagues, where we started doing some research. Uh, we did one study in Indiana and what we found uh, was a um, it was a quasi-experimental study, but what we found is that uh, after uh, six weeks, the people who went through the training had reduced emotional exhaustion, people had reduced depersonalization, and they were more positive and just in their attitudes of recovery and optimism toward the people they serve, and that about over 90% of the people found the training was helpful and that they were using uh, one or more strategies that we talked about. So that's kind of a, the background. And now if we can get a little bit more into the actual, um, again, what we'll be talking about is a particular program for trying to prevent burnout called uh, Breathe. It has in part kind of this uh, relapse prevention or functional analysis framework, which is for you it'll be important to identify warning signs, triggers, and most importantly, what are the strategies to overcome those kind of triggers or deal with those warning signs to keep you healthy. And we'll talk a little bit about some principles, but most of the time we'll be talking about practices and getting you to kind of think about your own personal plan for that. So there's a, the research shows there's a, a whole lot of common signs and symptoms of burnout. Uh, some of those are emotional ones in terms of feeling depressed or irritable, some of them are somatic, some of them are the interpersonal conflict kind of issues. There are also job issues in terms of feeling low satisfaction or quitting your job or poor performance. Um, so as you look at this list, I'd like to ask you to kind of see, does any of that sound familiar? Sound familiar particularly in your own work life? Are there some things that you see maybe that are your own kind of signs or warning signs of burnout. So part of that is on the uh, warning signs. 
the other part, and in some ways we put the cart before the horse here a little bit, is about that those things sometimes just feel like they show up, but often they're, they come as a result or a consequence of various stressors or triggers. So here are some of the kind of common triggers that happen uh, that tend to create burnout symptoms. Often that can be working with uh, people who have really intense and severe needs. It's also organizational factors. If you feeling like maybe you don't get the support that you'd like from your coworkers or your supervisor, or that there's low cohesion in the team, or you just don't have much autonomy in what you're doing. Um, as well as sometimes it's affected by things that are going on in our personal life in terms of you know stresses or losses or changes that we may be going through personally. So what I'd like to ask you to do is um, on the toolkit that you have on pages five and six, there's a place to kind of jot down. So if you could take uh, a couple of moments and write down on um, on the one side there. Can you identify anything that's a symptom or a warning sign of burnout for you personally? And then also, can you identify anything that's a stressor or a trigger that's likely to create that kind of feeling for you? And we want to start to kind of shift a little bit more about what can you do about those symptoms and triggers and what can help you in your job. We're going to uh, start a little bit a little bit like a pyramid, I guess, that we're starting with kind of peer, uh, principles about burnout prevention. But then the more important part are what are the practices? And then finally, the, the real comes to the, where the rubber hits the road is what's your own particular plan for that? So just first a little bit about burnout prevention principles. One is uh, really believe that we have we can make a personal intention and choice and commitment to be able to stay healthy and not to burn out. Or the positive side, I guess, to really be able to work in a way that's engaged and feeling meaningful. Like everything, we have a certain choice and we can make a plan about that. And we also have a personal responsibility. And that does not in any way diminish the fact that there's a whole lot of triggers or stresses. It can be organizational in the nature of the work and make it difficult. But even given that, it's that we can take some responsibility to be as healthy uh, as, as possible within that. A third part is really kind of taking the inner path, which means there's a lot of different things you can do. And it's really you know, for you to decide what's going to work for you. The Quakers have a saying that I like, which is kind of listening to the small, still voice within. I kind of believe that we do have this inner wisdom, and if we listen to that, we can use that to kind of guide us towards healthier kind of ways. Um, sometimes the other part of that is uh, if we do look inside, it might be uncomfortable at first because it might be right now we're feeling very burned out and that you know everything feels like a bit of a mess. And there's a Pam Hyde, who used to be uh, director of the Ohio Department of Mental Health, and then she was the director of SAMHSA under President Obama, had a saying that everything looks like a mess from the middle. And sometimes, you know, we have to get in the middle of that, and it feels messy, but that's part of our way through things. The other part is that it's important to be able to 
uh, serve, not fix. I know one person I worked with before just uh, was doing homeless, uh, working with homeless families with mental health and substance abuse disorders, just felt so burned out, just that sense like he had to kind of like solve everything for them. Instead, I mean, we're, we're here to really serve people and serve them in their wholeness and work with their strengths. We're not here to fix them. That would be kind of diminishing them sometimes. Um, and related to that, we have to trust the process. You know, we live in an era where we're more about accountability and evidence-based practices. And in my career, I've done a lot of research looking at outcomes and effective practices, and that's all important. And then when we get into it, though, what you have to do in some ways is kind of you give it your best and you let go of the outcome. There's a Christian saying of kind of let go and let God. You know, it's kind of the same kind of thing in some ways. We do the best we can and we let go of, you know, what the outcome is. It'll, it'll be what it is. Um, we also, uh, and we'll talk more about this, it's so important that usually when we're working, we're reading about something that happened yesterday or something we got to do tomorrow, and that just adds stress. So to kind of be here now, be in the present moment helps us. Another thing is to be able to really care for yourself, and that's often something difficult for people like ourselves. I mean, we're professional caregivers, right? And many of us may be people who came into this field because we were kind of natural caregivers within our own family to people who have issues in that way. And one of the things I often hear from people is just it's hard to kind of think about our own needs, and yet it's critically important. We have to take care of ourselves to be able to help care for other people. And the other thing that sometimes I hear from people is like, oh, I'd like to you know, do things to take care of myself, but I'm just too busy. When I think about that, I think about just some lessons that are there from history, like some of the biography of uh, the Buddha that his biographers talked about, how he uh, had this just incredibly busy schedule of uh, every day of doing kind of private counselings, of giving sermons. He was also developing kind of a whole order of monks and the whole practice of Buddhism had these incredible days and what his biographers said was that he was able to really be able to do that because every day he took time out for meditation himself as well as that he would go on retreats. Um, more recently Gandhi in India um, worked obviously incredibly hard as he helped free India from the colonial power of England at the time. Um, but what he would also do is he would work incredibly hard for six days and he would take the seventh day for his own kind of meditation and prayer. And the stories say that sometimes his followers would come to him and say, Gandhi, Gandhi, you know, quit meditating. You got to hear what the British just did. And he would stick to his meditation saying that, you know, to be able to feel that he was doing the best he could in six days, he needed that seventh day to really be able to kind of take care of himself and stay focused. So I think uh, the next time we're feeling like we're too busy to um, you know, take care of ourselves, maybe we can remember if the Buddha did that and he started a spiritual discipline that's still hundreds of million people strong 2,500 years later. Gandhi could do that and free a nation of a couple hundred million people from a large colonial power. If they could find time in their schedule to take care of themselves, then Maybe we've got to kind of rethink about if we can't do that for ourselves as well. 
Finally, I just would say that, you know, today we're really focused on what you can do, individual practices, but it's also, I mean, we all exist within a, a system or an ecology in that way. So there are organizational factors that definitely influence your burnout, and those are important and need intervention. Today, though, we're focused on what you can do yourself. So let's, uh, let's get into the, uh, the practices here. Um, there's a, a range of practices that we'll just kind of like sample today. Um, some of those are they're listed there for you. We're going to start with the core contemplative ones. Um, So as we go through this, I'd like you to also just kind of remember there's a, a saying I really like from uh, Rachel Naomi Remen that says, no one thing heals everyone, something heals everyone. So there'll be a lot of different ideas here. Some may not fit for you at all, and that's fine. But there are some things that will really help you. So. Part of this is to be able to kind of, again, find what works for you among a, a whole buffet of possibilities within that. And on these, uh, we're going to be doing things that some of which are going to be probably to some people very familiar because they kind of draw on clinical skills or practices. There's other things which may be new. And the important thing is just, again, identifying what is it that's going to work for you. So we're going to start with the, the contemplative practices, um, which when done in a certain way, a certain way meaning research shows that people who do these practices either every day or maybe every other day for about 15 or 20 minutes, but one that does that in a systematic way, that those lead to what Herbert Benson, who was at Harvard, called the relaxation response, which has all these positive physiological effects that you see on the slide there, in terms of reducing heart rate and blood pressure and muscle tension. Um, but it also has emotional and spiritual benefits in terms of people who do this feel more purpose and more satisfaction and a greater sense of spirituality. Um, so here are some of those kind of practices, and some of those are ones that are, again, going to be familiar to you. We're going to start with a very simple one that you may do in your clinical practice with people, but of kind of deep or diaphragmatic breathing. Um, and in done in a certain way, again, in a systematic way, it can also be something that is a practice of mindfulness. So as you may know, with deeper diaphragm breathing, when we get stressed, we tend to breathe in a more shallow way, just kind of like the, you know, the top of our chest, our lungs, and through our throat, and, and we often breathe uh, faster. And in contrast to that, that we get a relaxation response when we breathe from our diaphragm. So partly what that means is, is being able to just kind of feel, you know, your stomach kind of rise up as you breathe in and kind of uh, deflate there as you breathe out. And as you do that, you can use certain kind of uh, focus methods, like you can put your hands on your stomach as you do that. And you can also pay attention to physical sensations, like what does it feel like? Can you feel the air coming in through your nostrils? What's the temperature feel like when it comes in as you breathe in? 
does it feel like as you breathe out? Is there a difference in that temperature? You can also use imagery sometimes. For example, some people feel like, you can imagine you have like a balloon in your stomach and on the inhale you're inflating that balloon. And then on the exhale, you're letting it kind of collapse. Or that you can imagine there are waves coming in. So that like an ocean, you're breathing in and breathing out with the in and the out waves. And as you do that, you want as much as possible, just focus on your breathing and then sensations. If you have other thoughts going on in your mind, it's okay to just notice those, but try not to, you know, attach to them, just kind of let them go. So let's go ahead. I know some people have started that, but let's just take a moment to kind of do that deep breathing. So if you can get yourself in a relaxed position, if you're comfortable closing your eyes, do so. I know not everybody's comfortable closing their eyes in a group situation, so it's okay to keep them open if you want. But as you do that, go ahead and kind of breathe in deeply and feel your stomach rise. Notice kind of the top of the breath and then release and exhale. Notice how it breathe, the breath kind of comes to an end point there. And go ahead and inhale and breathe in deep. And exhale. And go ahead and continue to breathe in that way on your own. And if you like, imagine as you breathe that you're either blowing up and letting a balloon collapse, or maybe you're imagining the waves come in and out with each in and out breath. And if you like, you can even say kind of a, a word to be able to help you, like relax on each inhale, or maybe a spiritual word, or peace, or some word like that. Go ahead and take another breath or two on your own. And we'll come back together as a group then and go ahead and open your eyes and stir. So I know that's familiar, but it looks like the energy room is a little bit more relaxed in the room than when we began. and. Um, so that's something, again, many people do is in clinical positions. There's a variation on that, which is one of those ones that sometimes feels a little, might feel a little strange, um, but is also very effective and more effective for some people. It's called alternate nostril breathing. Some people might be familiar with that. Sometimes they do that in yoga. But the way you do alternate nostril breathing is that you put your fingers up alongside your nostrils and kind of you can do it you know two fingers like this or use your thumb there's different ways whatever feels comfortable but you close one nostril with one finger and you breathe in through the one bring it all the way up it's almost possible to get a higher more of an inhale on that and then when you've got the inhale in you hold it for a second and you close uh, you switch fingers and you close the other nostril and then you exhale 
and after you've exhaled, go ahead and inhale back through that same nostril. And get to the top. Exhale. So let's go ahead and uh, try that. If you're willing to, to give that a, if you're willing to give that a, a try, uh, go ahead and put your fingers alongside your nose. Close one nostril and breathe in. And kind of try and bring that breath all the way in. You get a deeper inhale sometimes, and at the top, hold it. Switch sides, close that nostril, and then exhale through the other one. Go ahead and inhale then through that same nostril, and then at the top, hold it and switch and exhale. And go ahead and do that a, a couple more times on your own. and we'll come back together as, as a group. Um, so a lot of people feel a little funny or self-conscious doing that. Um, and yet, from some of the trainings I've done, as often I've kind of gotten feedback afterwards. People are like saying, this felt like really stupid. I felt really awkward. And yet when we followed up with people like six weeks later, some people said that's the thing that really helped them to feel the most relaxed was to do that. There was one woman, too, who wrote in uh, the comment that uh, even though she felt really strange and funny doing that in the workshop, that was really helped her to relax. Plus, she also found there was this like fringe benefit that as she was doing that on the job, if she was also angry at somebody, she could almost be like flipping them off suddenly at the same time and they didn't recognize that. So um, let's do. Uh, one more brief exercise, and then we'll go ahead and uh, take a break. So we talked before that if we really focus on things, they can also be a practice of mindfulness. So there's a lot of different ways to do mindfulness. Uh, the practice we're going to do right now is one that involves sound. So if you're comfortable, go ahead and close your eyes, or uh, in any way take kind of a deep breath and relax yourself. And I'm going to uh, chime a bell. And what I'd like you to do is listen to the bell for as long as you can hear the sound and focus just on the sound of the bell. I'm going to chime in again and listen to it from the very first sound you hear to the last. And see it as you listen to that if you can almost feel like if there's a place where it kind of resonates that you can almost feel the sound inside yourself. Not just in the ears, but if it kind of connects someplace inside you. Keep your eyes closed for a moment, and I'd like you to 
try and listen to and concentrate just on any sounds that you hear coming from within the room right now. Now switch and concentrate on any sounds that you hear coming from outside of the room, which is easy at the moment, actually. And when you're ready, go ahead and open your eyes. Just a concluding thought before we take a break here on the, um, you know, you don't need to listen to a bell, but it's kind of a nice thing to do. But in terms of everyday life, even when you're working, you can step outside on your way to your car and can you take just a minute and close your eyes and listen to what sounds that you hear. Maybe you hear, you know, a bird singing, or maybe there's a dog yapping, or you can hear the wind rustling through the leaves. Those are things that if we focus, they kind of get us out of our head and break some of that stress that we would feel. The other thing is, um, we do that sometimes, we won't do it today because of the time, but can you try and have a conversation with somebody where you listen to them with the same kind of mindfulness and intention? that you listen to that chiming bell. Can you try that maybe as you're listening to a coworker or a person that you serve? Or at home with a loved one? Even for a minute, can you just kind of really focus on listening in that same kind of way? Did the uh, mindfulness exercise on uh, listening and a lot of different other areas that you can do that in terms of touch and taste and uh, taste is also a particularly good one that in some workshops we do, a, uh, maybe I've seen it before, one with raisins where you touch raisin, feel raisin and slowly eat that to get the mindfulness kind of thing. And um, Again, you can apply that, like how often on your job are you like gobbling down your lunch, maybe you're at your workstation working on a computer or doing paperwork, doing a phone call and you eat lunch and afterwards it's kind of like, I don't remember what that tasted like kind of stuff. So kind of a, just a good thing is to ask yourself, can you even give yourself, even if you're in a hurry, say you've got an apple, can you take two or three bites of that that you eat just really slowly and just really kind of focus on the taste of that or if you have an orange, can you have one segment where you just really pay attention to, you know, what the, the juiciness of the orange and the uh, liquid that kind of squirts in as you bite into it. Just again to kind of like immerse yourself in your senses and to be more truly present in that way. So a uh, Another kind of exercise is um, kind of a, a meditative practice in some ways is uh, loving kindness. And loving kindness is something that we probably all value in the abstract, you know, loving or being kind. And you know, I'm sure most of all of you are in certain ways. And yet sometimes that can get disrupted by the stresses and demands and the conflicts of the day. So we can cultivate our loving kindness and we can do that through uh, meditation. 
So if you're, uh, I'd like to ask you again to kind of get comfortable. If you're okay with closing your eyes, do so. And you know, maybe take a, a deep breath or two. And in this uh, meditation, I'm going to ask you to identify some positive source for yourself. For some people, that's like a religious or spiritual figure. For some people, it's maybe like a grandparent or a nurturer parent, or for some people, maybe that's even kind of like their best and highest self. So, but if you can identify that, take a breath in, and I'd like you to imagine that now that source, religious or family or uh, whatever it may be, is sending you loving kindness energy that's surrounding you. Not only surrounding you, but beginning to fill you on the inside. And if you can go ahead and let that feeling kind of come in and support you so that you feel nurtured and energized. And as you do that, you can silently say to yourself, may I be filled with loving kindness. May I be happy and healthy. And as you do that, continue to let those positive feelings continue for yourself. At the same time, I'd like you to think of a uh, a loved one, a family member or a partner, a dear friend. And as you do, I'd like you to imagine that you're sending, radiating out loving kindness to that person. And imagine that loving kindness is surrounding them and finding a way to support them and nurture them. And silently in your mind, if you can say to yourself, may they be filled with loving kindness and be healthy and happy. And let those feelings continue. And now I'd like you to think about someone you're concerned about, maybe who's going through a, a bit of a struggle. Maybe, again, it's a family or a friend, or maybe it's a person that you serve on your job. And imagine that those feelings of loving kindness are, again, are flowing from whatever source comes to you to that person so that they're being surrounded by loving kindness. Nurturing them and supporting them and helping them to be healthier and happier. And in your mind, say silently, may they be filled with loving kindness. May they help to be healthier and happier. 
on your own, just come back to yourself and let those feelings of loving kindness come back to you from whatever source you choose so that you feel supported, surrounded by love and kindness. And silently say to yourself, may I be filled with love and kindness and be healthy and be happy. And when you're ready, go ahead and uh, stir and open your eyes. Was that easy or difficult for people to do? Easy? Um, was it easy to also send that to yourself? Good, good. There's another variation we didn't do on that, but sometimes when you think about a person that you're in conflict with, maybe you're going to have a meeting with them and there's a conflict with them, there's also a, a practice on that where you can send them love and kindness. I know I did that once with a person, and uh, it really helped me to be in a much kind of calmer, more positive place in that interaction. So it's something we can use not only for those people that we hold near and dear, but sometimes for those people that we're in conflict with. So we're going to do uh, one more, uh, just one more of these contemplative practices, exercises, and that's the idea of imagery. And when we think about imagery, it's really powerful for us. And when people have been traumatized, there's often those images of the trauma that are kind of stuck in the amygdala of their brain and create a lot of stress and difficulty. Um, and what we want to try and do is use kind of the power of imagery in a positive way to be able to help us. So uh, there's a couple ways we can do that. One is I'd like you to kind of think about a situation maybe that you're feeling some stress or concern about. Maybe not something that's like overwhelming and makes you want to run out of the room, but something that you're feeling some, some level of kind of stress or concern about. Maybe a medium level of stress if there is such a thing. So you can kind of have that in your mind and try and get a, a sense, as if you were to put like a, a size and a shape or a weight to that, how big is that stress seems to you right now? Give it physical form, how big would it be? And now I'd like you to imagine that it was a month from now and you were looking at that same issue of stress. How big would it seem a month from now? Does that change the size of the shape? If you could go even further, if you could go a year out, how big does that worry or does that stress seem a year from now? Does that change the size or the shape of it? And now if you can imagine it's 
20 years from now, how big of a deal does that stress or worry to you seeing 20 years from now? Does it change the sense of the size or the shape of that? So let me, let me ask you, um, for folks, did it make any difference as you went farther down in time? Did it change? Did it change for the better? No? So there's kind of two things. Sometimes it's things like, oh, I got to get my thesis done, and, and those kind of things that can get worse. But there's other things like, oh, I'm stressed out because I got to get uh, this project done next week or something. Those things tend to get smaller. Did anybody have that sense that it seemed to diminish as you went forward in time? Yes. Okay. Good. And there's there's another variation where you can do the same thing about you can imagine that, but instead of going forward in time, you can like go up in elevation. You like you look at it from here, and then you look at it from the top of the building, and then you're on top of a mountain, and you're on an airplane, and then you're in space. And that can change it. And it seems like about half the people, time works better. And the other half the people, that kind of vertical space works better. So um, just another thing that when we're feeling kind of stressed or worried that we can use as a tool to reduce the stress. One other way we can do about imagery is um, I'd like you to think about a place you've been um, probably in nature where you felt really at peace. For some people, it might be in the mountains, or the beach, or the lake, or the forest, desert. But see if you can imagine yourself being back in that place right now. And if, as you do that, can you imagine, can you remember what it felt like to be there? What is the temperature like? Is it warm or cool? Were there any um, anything like a breeze coming in? Can you remember about how you felt there? What did that place look like? Was it beautiful? And in what particular way was it beautiful? And how did you feel when you were at that place? What feelings did you have? Inspired or peaceful? Would anybody uh, go ahead and uh, open your eyes if they were closed? So I mean, that's a, a simple tool that sometimes we're running around and we're busy and we're going to meetings or serving people, we're feeling stressed out. Maybe uh, you can take a few minutes, it took us, what, two or three minutes to do that, where you can imagine yourself being back in that place in some sensation of what that was and what the feelings were. What some people have also done, I know from those trainings, is some people are like, yeah, that felt so good, and then they're like, I'm going to bring a picture of that and put it in my workstation. And I can look up on my computer when I'm feeling stressed out and remind me as a way to get ourselves kind of regrounded and feel more uh, connected and more at peace. 
So those were the contemplative practices. Um, we're going to switch gears a little bit and cover some cognitive ones. And I'm going to skip over some of this because of the, the time. But I, I like these two introductory quotes. Um, All we are is a result of what we thought. And every problem can be laid to a restriction of human consciousness. So those, particularly the latter one, kind of talks about it in the negative. But the flip side of that is, obviously, there's huge power in how we think about things. So uh, we change the way that we think about things. We can feel a lot better. We can feel a lot of stress. Um, as you're all familiar with, Sure, there's kind of cognitive therapy, an ABC model, a situation happens, that's what we think about it, and then that creates the emotional effects or consequences. And if we change the way we think about it, then we can change what those emotional consequences are. So those are those are things that we can um, do quite easily, or maybe not so easily sometimes, depending on what the thought is and how entrenched it is. What I'd like you to do is to look in your toolkit on page eight. And on page eight, there's a uh, list of kind of, just I kind of gathered over the years of some of the common thoughts that I hear from people in mental health that kind of, that express uh, some of the thinking that leads to burnout and mental health. Could uh, someone read the first one out loud? And the bracketed statement means those are all kind of like variations of the same basic comment. So, uh, no one's in it all the time. No one said anything or acknowledged or recognized. Okay, good, thank you. Um, what about number five? Can someone be willing to read that out loud? Somebody be willing to read number seven out loud? is, you know, in CBT is it's not only like this immediate thought that's in the head, but it's kind of like what's the core belief that's driving it underneath that. And I think among providers, there's often kind of two core beliefs that when they get um, triggered, create a sense of, of burnout. 
One is that sense of I'm doing all this basically and I'm not appreciated. Or I'm doing all this and um, it's not doesn't make any difference. I don't I don't see it as being effective in some way. And in the same way, I mean, I think all these, if we think about them, we can come up with alternative um, interpretations or alternative ways of thinking about those kind of things, and even thinking about it at the meta level. At the meta level, it's kind of like recognizing that you're enough in and of yourself. You're worthy of having good self-esteem even if it doesn't get recognized, or even if somebody overlooks the good job that you did in some ways, or even if things didn't go well on that particular day with the person that you were serving. So, so we can uh, you know, do that, our own kind of cognitive behavioral thinking um, for ourselves. And the other thing is that sometimes even very kind of, we can use very simple kind of things. From Eastern philosophy, there's a saying that I like that is if we're, you know, so often we get caught up in worry, you know, worry feeds our stress. The saying is, if you can change it, why worry? And if you can't change it, why worry? That's why I was kind of letting go of some of that stress and that worry. We can also think about things having uh, a little kind of positive reminders that help us um, not just dealing with the negative, but we can put positive thoughts in our mind. I did, uh, um, I was doing a presentation in Indianapolis once and drove over from St. Louis and I was listening, this is like a dozen years ago or so, I was listening to a CD by Sus John Stevens on there and a song I liked and there was a lyric on there that uh, said, love each day. And after that, I just kind of took that and used that as just kind of like each day I would remind myself to love each day. Um, now, when I was a kid, sometimes I'd be like singing songs and my best friend would be looking at me like, that's not what the lyrics say. So it turns out that's not exactly what he says either, but it's close and it, it kind of worked. But I would kind of ask you similarly, is there some saying that you can use just each day to remind yourself that kind of puts you in that positive frame. So we've been talking about cognitions and what we you know think about in our everyday thoughts are important, but we're more than just kind of our surface thoughts too. There's things like meaning and our deeper values are also really important to us. So um, there's this quote by uh, Mary Oliver, the poet who recently died, that I, I like. And the last two lines of that are, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. I would ask you, what is it you plan to do with your wild and precious life? And what is it that you want to be the meaning of your life and the purpose of your life? Now that's a, that's a very big question, um, and it may need some time to be able to clarify that. Um, but it's something I think to continue to think about. And in addition to that idea of like meaning overall, there's also that question of values. What is it that are really 
the guiding values for you. You know, we get a, a lot of messages in our culture, unfortunately, that say that's really what's important are things like money and material possessions and status and power and achievements and those kind of things. Um, and, you know, that's, that's certainly one perspective, and I'm not trying to dismiss all those things totally, but I also think that there's wisdom in this uh, comment from uh, a Nigerian writer who says, uh, material success has brought us to a strange spiritual and moral bankruptcy, and we must bring back into society a deeper sense of the purpose of living. So what is that deeper sense for you of the purpose of living? What are your particular values? In talking with other people like yourself, I think often it's common to have things like the values of compassion and understanding and being loving and being caring and dependable and kind and those sorts of things. What I'd like you to, what I'd like to do though is do a kind of a, a, ask you to do a brief exercise to try and identify and discover an experience in your own work that helps you to think about, well, what's meaningful to you and what are the values? If you look at page um, nine of the toolkit, it asks you to briefly describe a, a work experience that was really uh, moving or meaningful or powerful to you in some way. Um, what is it that touched you about it? What did, I mean, what were you doing or what was happening in that situation that made it uh, powerful for you? So if you can, uh, what I'd like to ask you to do is take just a couple minutes here and try and remember something in your work that was that powerful, meaningful experience for you. And just kind of jot out, you know, write a, a few sentences about what it was and what was happening and maybe in particular, what was it, uh, not only what was happening, but what was it that touched you. You know, when you did this, um, Partly it's a reminder to ourselves about why we're doing this work, and not only why, but what it can be like. And sometimes that helps to kind of carry us through the days that are more difficult, but it also gives us kind of like a, a beacon of this is the kind of thing that we want to be able to continue to do. And like from the story that you shared, Maybe it'll be the similar exercise, but even if it's not the similar exercise, you can do those same kind of things that you talked about in terms of being present and compassionate and using loving kindness. And you don't need Balboa Park or Belief to do that. You can do that all the time, right? So these are really, I think, you know, gems that we can draw from our experience, and sometimes they need a little more polishing to figure out what to do with them. But they're great as those reminders and guides, and they're things that we can even try and consciously try and build on in just a little bit. We're going to talk about kind of time management strategies, and some of that goes back <coughs> to you know, how we make it more meaningful and more with our goals. So thank you for doing the exercise, and thank you for sharing that. Um, one, uh, one other exercise that we want to, or not exercise, but topic, is that of gratitude. 
there's uh, really been a you know burgeoning <coughs> research about gratitude and uh, the positive benefits that come from that, including uh, higher life satisfaction, more optimism, greater energy more of a sense of connection to other people, and again, even improved health <coughs> situations with better cardiovascular functioning and immune functioning, and people who practice more gratitude tend to have longer lives as well. So there's a lot of different ways to do gratitude, but we can, it, I mean, partly it's to some extent probably just a habit or a trait, but it's something we can really cultivate and do that by particular practices. There's a lot of different ways to do that, but uh, some of the most common ones are thinking about, um, sometimes it's called uh, you know, daily blessings or three blessings or what went right today, but it's to make a practice for that day, can you journal briefly three things that you feel blessed about or three things that went well in that particular day? So what I'd, I'd like to ask you to do right now is if you could just jot down um, on page 11 of the toolkit, if you can write down one thing that you feel grateful for about in your work life and one thing that you feel grateful about maybe in any realm of your life, maybe personal outside of work. Think of you, you know, as we said, if you do this practice, it kind of changes us. So often we kind of get into the habit of kind of like what went wrong and what the problem is. Uh, not that you want to ignore problems, but it really, I mean, those are drags on our spirit. And if we at least balance that picture by, well, what are the things we appreciate? What are the things that went right? And that's kind of a boost to our energy and allows us to focus more in the future on the positive kind of things. So what I, what I would encourage you to do um, is if you could try to do gratitude practice for just say one week, maybe starting next week. And if you could uh, you know, journal, another way to do that is if you make a conscious effort to be able to share with somebody, that's an alternative way to do that. Um, either three things you know, that you feel grateful for, um, or you could do one at work, one at home. The caveat, though, or is I would encourage you to try this wrinkle in that, and that is if whatever you say on Tuesday that you're grateful for is different than you said on Monday, and Wednesday is different than Tuesday or Monday, so that you become, uh, you have to keep looking for new things. And what happens is when people do this is that we tend to go from these very general kind of things which are important, like I'm grateful that I have a job, or I'm grateful uh, for my wife or my husband, to very specific kind of things. Like, you know, I'm grateful today that when I came back and I was feeling so kind of worn out, my supervisor kind of checked in with me and asked, how are you doing? And they reinforced, like, what a good job I did. Or when I went home that, you know, I'm not only grateful for my spouse, but they hey, I'll, do the, I'll cook dinner tonight, or I'll do dishes, or my kid was, who usually is throwing a fit about doing homework, was kind of like, hey, look, I got it done, and gave me a big smile, or gave me a hug. So it helps us to go beyond the general things, which are important, into the very you know, specific details of our life that we appreciate. So in that way, rather than 
three or four things we're grateful for, there's three or four hundred that just kind of continues to, to grow. So I'd uh, encourage you to do that. Let's do one really quick uh, exercise. Uh, another category, we're moving from the meaning and the values and the gratitude to there's also physical strategies. So let's do one quick one and then we'll take a break. Uh, it's called a uh, body scan. And some of you might be familiar with the body scan. It's basically what you do is you think about different areas of your body. You not only think about them, but you pay attention to them. And you pay attention to what does that part of your body feel like right now. And if you want to, an option is you can send a sense of kind of warmth or even loving kindness to that area of your body. It's a good way to kind of get regrounded in your body and to give you a sense of renewal. So if you're comfortable, doing so, go ahead and close your eyes and just put yourself in some kind of more relaxed, comfortable position right now. Maybe take a, a deep breath and direct your attention to your feet. What does it feel like in your feet right now? Tension, tightness. And if you think about it, can you direct a sense of warmth or loving kindness to your body and your feet? <coughs> and let that sense of warmth continue, but now redirect your attention to all of your legs and also your hip area. And as you do that, what does it feel like in your legs and your hips? Is there a tightness? Can you send a direct uh, sense of warmth? And let that sense of warmth continue in your legs and your hips and think about actually in your, what does your back feel like now? Is there tightness or soreness? Heaviness in that, or what? To direct your attention, what do you notice about how your back feels? Can you send a sense of warmth, loving kindness to your back? Feel some positive energy flowing in? Let that positive energy continue. Now move your attention up to your arms and your shoulders. What do they feel like? Where are the sensations? Heaviness or tiredness? If you like, invite warmth and loving kindness into that part of your body that's your arms and shoulders. And now think about your neck and your head. How does your neck and your head feel like? Tightness? Strain? If you like, can you direct some warmth or healing or loving energy to your neck and your head?
now with your eyes closed, just kind of scan back over your body and your feet, your legs, your hips, your back, arms, and shoulder, and neck, and head. And if there's any place that needs more attention, just let yourself attend to that for a moment. And go ahead and send some extra warmth or loving kindness or healing energy to that part of your body that needs extra attention. And when you're ready, go ahead and uh, allow yourself to kind of slowly stir and open your eyes. Any uh, quick comments or reactions, thoughts to that exercise? It's one of those ones where it seems like the room got more relaxed too. And when I said about head and neck, I saw like everybody was kind of going like that. That's a common place where we store tension. So, I mean, we did that in about five minutes. Again, it's one of those kind of things, even at your workstation or your car, I mean, we carry stress in our body sometimes. Just to be able to kind of do that as a way to get ourselves regrounded and to let some of the stress sort of dissipate and to be kind to ourselves in a particular kind of way. So we're switching gears into uh, another topic here, which is around reclaiming your time. And time is really one of our most precious resources. I mean, eventually we'll find out that uh, we have less time than money and that time is really important for our sense of well-being as well as to be able to deliver service to people in a, in a caring and effective way. That being said, you know, time is also a stress area. There's often tension around it in terms of we do this, do that. It always feels like there's more demands and pulls than there is time sometimes. And that's become even just more so over history, just with these things and computers and just the era we live in just tends to be more and more accelerated and rapid pace. So uh, the basic premise we have is that some of those demands and pulls on you will be necessary, some will be important, and some will be neither. And our general goals of this is helping you to kind of figure out ways to do less of the things that diminish you and wear you down, do more of the things that you love, and to be able to utilize some skills and tools to be able to best manage your time to help you do that. So we have kind of three major strategies about how to be able to reclaim your time. Um, and we're going to go into each one of those. So the first one is really by setting more boundaries or compassionate boundaries for yourself. And compassionate boundaries uh, is, I guess, an alternative word for kind of limits, which Sometimes people don't like the word limits, but boundaries are important. And it's compassionate in the sense of, again, you need things to be able to preserve your energy, your wellness, your well-being. And so part of that compassion is for yourself. But also, as we've talked about before, you have to be able to take yourself, take care of yourself, and by being compassionate toward yourself, 
It allows you to be more compassionate toward other people. So, different ways about where you set compassionate boundaries. One is basically just around that sense of how much do you work? And there's no right answer to that. You know, we all have different uh, standards or just different, uh, or a different place with that. For, for some of us, it's like, I'm paid for 40 hours, I'm gonna work a good 40 hours, and when I'm done with my day, I'm done with my day, and that's perfectly fine. And there's other people who are like, you know, I don't mind working a little bit of extra time, but I can do that maybe two evenings uh, a week at home. I can do email or paperwork for an hour, but it can only be an hour. It can't take up my whole evening, or it can't take up my evening every time. Uh, I, a friend of mine uh, has a you know, pressure job as an uh, executive for a major corporation, and for her, it's uh, she'll work you know, long days, but once she leaves work, she's done with work for the day. So she's not bringing it home, she's not working on weekends. So there's, again, no right answer, but the question for you is, what, do you, what are your boundaries? What do you need in order to stay healthy and effective for yourself? Is it that 40 hours? Is it you can work um, maybe a little bit more? But what are the, the boundaries around that situation for you? Another part of that, though, is it's not only uh, boundaries about work, but it's boundaries for the rest of your life. What, is, what do you need boundaries on for work-life balance? For some people, it's like, you know, I don't mind staying an extra half hour if I need to to get some paperwork done. But I've got a yoga class that starts at 6 o'clock, and I want to be at my yoga class, or I want to be at the gym, or I want to be home for dinner with my family. Uh, a colleague I knew who was the CEO of a really large uh, mental health organization that's known nationally, you know, tended to work kind of long days, but for him the boundary was every morning he wanted to have breakfast with his family and with his two kids. So he was saying no to anybody. It's, you know, he'd be like, hey, can you do a breakfast meeting at 7 o'clock? He's like, no, I'm going to have breakfast with my family. Well, maybe I won't get home until 6.30, but breakfast is kind of our time as a family. So again, there's no right answer, but the question to you is, where do you need boundaries to preserve this is really important that I get home and I walk the dog when it's still light, or I get to the gym or I have time with my family. What is it that you need to make sure you put some fences around and be able to protect? The other place to draw boundaries is kind of what you do with your time or how you spend your time. Um, a good way to think about that is this comes from uh, Stephen Covey's book, uh, Seven Habits for Highly Effective People, and it's the quadrant thinking about there's really two dimensions. There's importance and there's urgency, and then some things are highly important um, and highly urgent, some things are important and not urgent, and there's some things that are urgent and not important, and there's some things that are neither on those. So partly it's being a more encouraging you to be a little bit more thoughtful. Can you think about some things that maybe eat up a lot of your time but really aren't that important? 
sometimes there's a lot of email chatter that goes on sometimes, and is that really important? It may seem urgent, or it might be, hey, we're having a meeting, you know, can, when can you come to this meeting? And obviously a lot of meetings are important, and I've been in a lot of meetings, <laughs> sorry to say, that haven't been that important. So it's being able to kind of like figure out sometimes what is it that's, that just because there's a demand on you doesn't mean you should do it. Um, Stephen Covey again said that by being able to say no to some things, it allows us to say yes to the things that are more important. So it's giving yourself that permission to be able to do that. So another, uh, another part of reclaiming your time is figuring out how you organize the time that you do have. And an important part of that is setting goals for yourself. Um, there's a lot of research that show that people who set goals are uh, achieve more and have a higher sense of personal achievement and a higher sense of personal satisfaction. Um, and it allows us sometimes to sidestep those things like, hey, can you do this? Hey, can you do that? Which are maybe somebody else's goals, but they're not your goals. They help give us more focus for what we need to do in that way. And the best goals are the ones earlier today we talked about your personal passions for this work and your dreams and your meaning and your values. So the best goals are the ones that really are consistent and flow out of what's meaningful to you. What are your goals? Or, or what are your goals that are consistent with your values and with your dreams in that way? So if you look on page uh, 22 to 24 of the toolkit, there's an example of a weekly schedule. 20 and 21, there are some examples of weekly schedules, which this is kind of like a variation again of something that Stephen Covey recommended. But basically, it breaks down your, your week. And there's a place not only for each day what you're scheduling, but there's a place for what your goals are, both for the week and then for that particular day. So. Um, you know, a lot of people fall in this like open to-do list. You got like 10 things or 15 or 20 things on the to-do list and you're like busy trying to cross them out. And you know, and, I mean, that's one way to organize your time and it helps you to be productive. But an even higher order way is how can you classify those things and particularly prioritize them back around your goals. Um, so, on the, like on page 21 of that, there's a place for your weekly priorities, which is a good place to write down what are the things, your to-do list, but thinking about how you can construct that back in terms of what are your goals for the week. There's always gonna be some of the things we have to do, right? It's just part of the job. And then there's, in any job, we have more discretion than what we know. So within your discretionary time, how can we kind of do more of the things that are important to us? And then within that, how do we prioritize that? I know uh, one you know, executive who tends to like, well, that's a priority, and that's a priority, and that's a priority. And we ask them, it's like, well, everything's a priority. Well, the truth is, if everything is a priority, then nothing is really a priority. So what we need to do is use some kind of system to prioritize that. A good one uh, is like on your, your list of priorities there. 
can you categorize those into three groups? A's, B's, and C's. A's being the most important, B being medium, C being the lower priority. And then within that, if you tend to cheat like I sometimes do, it's like, oh, there's a whole bunch of A's and not too many B's and C's. Then to keep yourself honest, what's A1 and A2 and A3? So again, that you have a sense of uh, priority within that. And then as you look at your week, again, there's the things that you need to do that are clinical service or supervisions or meetings, and that takes up X amount of your time. But there should be some blocks of time that are open. How can you translate then some of the things that are your particular goals and priorities and actually block them out? So it's like, you know, I really want to develop that new staff training on uh, helping other people learn DBT on the rest of the staff, but I need some time to organize that. And you block that out in a two-hour block that you've got open on Thursdays from 1 to 3 p.m. So it's translating your goals and priorities onto your schedule. And the other thing that's important is to not only schedule your goals and your priorities, but figure out some ways to manage and deal with those things that tend to eat up a lot of your time. Um, some examples of that is often it's so easy just to kind of get stuck in front of the computer. It's like, oh, I'm answering this email, and here comes another email, and I'm answering that one, and then another one, and at the end of the day, you're like, what did I do today? Well, I read 97 emails, and I answered 68 of them in that way, but is that really going to give you fulfilled, or is that going to be kind of one of those days that just kind of eats at your soul a little bit? So we can... A strategy for that is to be able to block out time for those things that are necessary, but you can be more efficient. It's like, you know what? I'm going to spend a half hour every morning from 8.30 to 9, say, and then from 4 to 4.30, well, what I'm going to do is respond to emails and respond to phone calls. And that's how much time that I have. And what you find is if you do that, two things. One is like there's all the email chatter that goes on, right? It's like 12 people respond. and if you, it starts at 10 o'clock in the morning, and if you don't respond to it till 4, chances are that issue's been resolved anyway, so you don't want to get resolved. And you miss a lot of the kind of back and forth kind of stuff. Or, and the other thing is that you become more efficient. It's like, okay, I've got a half hour to return emails and uh, return phone calls, and it, it's allocated a half hour, so it doesn't take an hour and a half of you day to do that you find you're much more efficient in your replies. Uh, same kind of things. I don't know how many of you are in administrative positions, but that's the same kind of thing that, again, like, you know, um, meetings, you know, grow like wild mushrooms sometimes. And so one of the things you can do is kind of figure out, you know, what's, how much time do you have for meetings? And then have, like, a quota. Well, I've got, like, 14 hours this week that I can do meetings and somebody else comes up like, hey, we need to have a meeting. It's like, well, I can't do it this week. I can do it next week. Or to do a sense of priority, like I can do this meeting, but that means I'm going to need to postpone or cancel this other meeting. But some way that puts you in charge of your time instead of, and the demands, instead of the time and the demands running your schedule. What we want to get to is just to the place, um, I like these, like this quote from Lawrence LaShawn, who's done a lot of work with uh, cancer patients. 
but it asked uh, them, and it's, you know, we can do the same kind of thing as, what can we imagine doing that makes you feel good to get out of bed in the morning? And this flip side of that is when you go to bed at night, what can you look back and you can feel good about how you spent time during your day? Um, it's also Marsha Tinatar who uh, is, does a lot of like mentoring and coaching with corporate executives, leading around time, talks about instead of, you know, like what needs to be done, it's really what's the best use of my time? What's worth doing? What can I do that's going to really renew my sense of purpose and energy? So I'd ask you to just kind of take a, a minute. This is kind of be one of those kind of things that's probably going to, you know, would take some follow-up for you to put into more work. But see if you can think about uh, page 19 of the toolkit, I think. Take a minute and think about what are some of the things that you can maybe say no to that are now end up your time? What are the things that you can maybe more effectively limit, like blocking times for emails or phone calls? And are there things you can do that will build more on helping create goals that build on what you really want to be doing, your meaning, your values? So as a follow-up, you might think about next week, can you do some kind of schedule then that follows those practices? But for now, just take a, maybe a couple minutes and see if anything comes to your mind about things you can say no to or you can more efficiently schedule. So uh, again, those are, uh, I think today is just to kind of get you to maybe begin to identify possibilities. And I would encourage you, if you're interested in doing that, to uh, in that next week, next step, next week, to see if you can put that into a schedule that then puts down what are your goals for the week, what are your priorities, priorities that are ranked maybe with the ABC kind of thing. How can you transfer some of those priorities that are your own into your weekly schedule? How can you block out some of the things that you need to do but that can eat away your time and, and energy in that way? The other thing around time uh, management and, um, is that we can also change really our experience of time. And, as we think about that, we've all had experiences where it's like, wow, that time went really quick and it was an hour, or it's like, oh my God, that hour seemed like it lasted uh, almost eternity. So we have a different experience even though time is objective. Um, part of one of the things also that adds stress to us and gives us kind of more of a sense of time being carried is multitasking which for a while, I know some mental health organizations were really big on training their people to be multitaskers. There's been more research that comes out though that says that um, actually people tend to be less productive multitasking than if they're focused at one thing at a time. There are some gender differences and women tend to be better multitaskers uh, than men, but in general, it's difficult to multitask if you've noticed, I've had difficulty moving the slides and finding my presentation notes at the same time. So, um, but not only that, but sometimes it, there's also research that shows, particularly as we're doing more kind of complex tasks that take thinking or take energy, it's almost like we need some downtime in between those. 
and people tend to like schedule themselves back to back to back to back, which is not only like really draining, but sometimes then we just don't perform as well. Because some of the new, newer neurocognitive research shows, I mean, our brain in um, many ways, almost like you know farm fields, it needs to lay tallow a little bit in between kind of complex tasks. So one of the things you might think about then too, particularly as you're like focusing on stuff, can you give yourself five minutes when you go between this project to that one and maybe do a body scan or do a deep breathing or an alternate nostril breathing, something that allows your mind to kind of like uh, re-energize itself a little bit. Also, just, I mean, as you know, being more mindful is going to change our experience of time. And there's also just our attitudes really affect that. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, the seven dwarfs were onto something when they said about whistle when you work, because that really does kind of change the way that we approach work and changes our experience of that. Also, we can change it by having intentionality. People share today, like, if uh, the meaning about approaching work with a sense of presence or compassion or kindness and caring. That really changes our experience if we can be mindful of that. And the other thing is to kind of put our work in a larger context of meaning. Um, there's a, a Roberto Saggiolia, who was the um, developer of psychosynthesis, uh, used to tell a story that was a good one, I thought, about three stone cutters during the Middle Ages and they were all cutting stones for blocks that were, you know. Um, and uh, an observer went up to the first stone cutter and said, what are you doing? And the guy said, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm cutting this block of stone out, and when I get done with this one, they're going to pull another one up, and I'll do that, and I do that all damn day, you know, and I'll do that till I die. I'm just cutting stones one after another. And then the person went to the second stone cutter and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm working really hard, but I'm doing this to be able to make money that will feed my family and so I can send my children to school so that they will have a better life for themselves than the job that I have. And the person went to the third stone cutter and said, what are you doing? And that person said, I'm helping build a cathedral that will last for thousands of years and will be like a beacon of light to lost souls through troubled times and will help them find their way. So three people doing the same task but all having different stories about it. And so again in that way that we can, the stories we tell ourselves and about the meaning of the work really changes our own experience of the work, not to mention probably the service that we provide like that quote from Viktor Frankl. Um, so the, uh, the last major area we're going to talk about before we begin to kind of pull things together is that around social support and social relationships. And there's a lot of research that shows that our social relationships are really important for our happiness and our health and our well-being and that social support really can serve to uh, buffer the stress that we experience and to reduce burnout. So uh, while that's true, we don't always feel so good about our relationships with 
other people at work, as you can see in this, this it asked uh, a group of people to be able to kind of rate their level of happiness when they were spent with different people and that friends were at the very top of the list. And co-workers are kind of pretty mediocre there. And don't feel discouraged, but if you're a boss, you're uh, in general, that's uh, bosses tend to be at the bottom of the list in terms of kind of the happiness that people feel spending with them. So left to its own device, you know, social support at work is not really positive, but there's some things that we can do to improve that. Some of the things we talked about before about uh, loving kindness, we can do that. Gratitude. There's actually, a, we didn't talk about that, but there's a practice you can do of gratitude. We were talking about that as an individual one, but we can also do that in terms of um, you can do a gratitude practice, say, once a week. Can you share something that you feel grateful for with one of your coworkers? And the best way to do this right now, people are like, Oh, good job, or maybe here's a brief little email, well, thanks for doing that. Then, I mean, I guess that's better than nothing, but it's also some research shows it's much more powerful if you do that in a different kind of way. One way to do that would be if you even write out by hand, maybe just a little note about, you know, I was really grateful that we were feeling overloaded and you stepped up and you went out and saw that person who was really struggling when we were shorthanded and it gave me a break did such a good job. And to me, that also demonstrated how you really care about that person. Um, and you write that out, and then you meet with the person, and you say that to them, and you give them the note as a follow-up. People feel much more supported by that. Um, well, that's one thing we can do. There's others, and you know, just as you know, there's good communication skills that you know, and assertiveness, those kind of things are important. Um, I'm going to skip that one because of time. There's also um, a practice called active and constructive responding. Uh, it comes out of positive psychology. And um, there's basically four different ways that we can respond to people. Um, so let's do just a little scenario here, a little role play. Um, so uh, here's the scenario you would imagine. The situation is that you've gone out, you found a client who'd been lost to the team, found them under the bridge, um, you engaged the person, and you came back and you're telling them what you did. Okay. Thank you. So I'm your coworker. Can you, uh, sure. And I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to demonstrate first the active and constructive response, which is one where you really um, are positive, <coughs> you're asking questions, and very engaged. So. That's awesome. That's awesome. How did you think about looking under the bridge? That was a great idea to look under there. How did how did he react to you? He was kind of standoffish at first. I thought there was some thing that they would realize that what the group is at. So he said that he would be one of the students that he said that I would be deodorant and coffee. Nice. 
sounds like you were really able to help them connect. How did you feel doing that? I'm so glad you did that. That really was a good service. So that's kind of the active and constructive, where you're asking a lot of questions and very positive and very engaged. Next is the uh, passive and constructive. So can you do the same? Yep. Demonstrate passive and destructive. Okay. situation, we've got liability issues. What if something had happened to you? You know, we, you really need to be checking that out before you do something like that. So, she was the same, and you did a great job. Thank you for doing that. Uh, takes courage to do that. I appreciate that. But you could get very different responses, and mine are, you know, maybe a little bit exaggerated to make the uh, make the point. But which one did you feel best in? The active and constructive. Yeah. yeah. And how often does that happen in our interactions, either with our colleagues or at home? Is that kind of typical, or is so it's under our control. We can change that uh, instead of like, oh my goodness, I gotta look at my email, I gotta look at my text, yeah, 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 kind of stuff. We can ask questions, we can be involved. So let's do just kind of a brief exercise if you can do with uh, one, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, choose another person. If one of you could tell like a, a brief story, it can either be about work, it can be something you're personal life, something you're doing this weekend, and if you can practice being that not active and destructive, but active and positive of asking a lot of questions, showing a lot of energy, doing that. So again, it's one potential tool to have in the toolbox, but something I'd encourage you to think about. Can you try that out a little bit with your coworkers, and then also how do, uh, how do they respond? You know, I also remember one person from one workshop I did who later uh, told me that she actually did that with her husband, that they would commute in to work together and usually just like you know, sitting there and driving in and kind of stuff. And she really kind of practiced that and how much she felt like their relationship was better 
as a result of doing the active and constructive during the time they were together anyway, but just being more engaged about it. So um, just a, a few last things here before we uh, um, begin to focus on your particular plan and wrap it up and conclude. One is I want to talk about the issue about um, you know, conflicts that happen on teams and blessing. One of the, uh, you know, one of the things I've seen that can be most destructive to the team is when there's conflicts between staff, particularly the ones that just kind of like go on and on and simmer and eventually what happens is that somebody leaves or both people leave or other people leave because it's really uncomfortable. So, I mean, to the extent that we create positive relationships and we help prevent some of those, but people being people, that sometimes we're going to have you know conflicts that develop. So, I just want to cover a little bit, maybe a, you know a couple uh, strategies about how to deal with those kind of situations. One is, and I'm skipping over some slides here because of the time, but just kind of the issue about uh, suspending judgment, and I mean that in two ways. One is um, there's kind of the whole idea about the letter of inference that we tend to like see things, we make assumptions, we jump to conclusions, we react on that. So partly it's kind of like, just like, again, we talked about, you know, cognitive things we could do earlier about burnout, just being aware of our own, um, you know, thoughts and making sure that we don't jump to conclusions and look at other interpretations and check them out and communicate with people. Another thing about judgments is, I don't know about you, but when I think about some of the un unhappiest people that I know, they're people who are very judgmental, who always are like very critical about negative about other people. So it's just kind of that reminder, like, you know, if we're that way, we're going to feel really unhappy, and we're probably not going to have pretty good, not going to have good relationships. That being said, there's some research from some folks out of the Harvard Business School that says, again, that conflicts in the workplace happen all the time. And what tends to happen is, you know, as a conflict develops is, you know, I've got this perspective, you've got that perspective, I say my point, you say your point, I get, you know, kind of dig in on mine, you dig in on yours. And then we start getting personal, like, oh, he's so stubborn, he always wants it his way, he thinks, you know, this or that kind of stuff. So that when there are first, like, substantive conflicts, pretty soon they get personal. And, um, you know, emotions develop, and as they do that, the conflicts just intensify. So what do we do about that? You know, I mean, there's human nature, like, oh, let's just avoid conflict. That's one way to deal with it, not a very effective one, usually. Uh, some people are very confrontational, which can like blow things up in a negative way. Another way is to have you know, that courage to have crucial but sensitive conversations. One particular model for that, which I think uh, can be helpful, is just kind of like engaging the person, but in a mindful way. So partly that just starts by being aware that a, a conflict's developing, um, so just notice that, and then as you notice that, take that as an opportunity to kind of relax and center yourself. Relax in two ways. One is you're in a meeting, you're starting to you notice there's some tension developing. Maybe that's a cue to be able to do a little bit, I mean, just like we did deep breathing in here, you can do that in meetings. Nobody really knows. You may not want to do the alternate nostril in, in a meeting, but you can do the diaphragmatic breathing just to kind of relax yourself. 
but also to center yourself in your values. When we talked earlier, people shared about the importance of being kind and compassionate and loving. So, uh, I mean, you still have your perspective and you gotta deal with the issues, but can you come from a place that's grounded in your values? Another thing is to be open and inquiring. And often when people are, have a conflict going on, I might ask you a question, not because I really want to hear what you say, but because I'm going to like do a rebuttal or try and pin you into a corner. But can I change that? It's like, well, let me try and understand what you're saying, because maybe I don't really fully understand what your thoughts are. So to do that in an opening kind of way, and then I have a better understanding. And then also to be able to express empathy, which goes a long ways when there's conflict with other staff. It's like, oh, I understand you feel really passionate and been frustrated because we've implemented this new system and it's harder for you to be able to, you know, serve clients well and that's really important to you. Somehow expressing that empathy. And then to make some choice about how do you respond? You know, are there some creative solutions? And again, if you've really opened it up and understood the person. Uh, it's also more likely it's not going to be your way or the highway, win or lose, but it's often possible then to put together, like, is there some third solution that kind of responds to everybody's concerns? And then also um, to use the uh, Teflon approach, which they talked about Ronald Reagan, is just like, you know, just let some of the stuff slide off and you don't have to attach and, and react to it. Um, so that's that's kind of one model that I that I find helpful. One of the other things is, as much as we uh, you know want to prevent conflict, sometimes we're going to get our feelings hurt or we get wounded, and that happens in our personal lives all the time. Um, you know, it's interesting that all the major religions in the world also have an important place for forgiveness. So just as another option to particularly to think about can we practice forgiveness sometimes. It doesn't mean like you forget about things and you may still do things to protect yourself and make sure you're going to be safe and you're okay, but can you forgive somebody who has done something that's left you with hurt feelings and there's different options of doing that. One way is to like write a letter and you write about what happened, what you felt about it, and then write your intention to forgive the person. And then within that, you still have delivery options. You can give it to the person, or you can keep it for yourself and just remind yourself what happened and your intention to forgive that person. You can burn it, you can do any number of things, but all of which, again, there's research that shows too that people who practice forgiveness have better mental health, less substance abuse, a greater sense of well-being. So those are things we can do. The other thing is, uh, you know, social support isn't just about dealing with conflict, but it's about how do you really gather positive social support for yourself. So I'd encourage you to think about who are the people, is there at least one person that you can talk about in some kind of, you know, meaningful way about your work, what your dreams are, about your intentions to feel less burned out, to feel more meaning and more satisfaction. And maybe can you even like, you know, let's plan a coffee date once a month where we get together and I can share with you about how things are, uh, how things are going and what's going on, um, how I'm doing with all that and get some, get some support and feedback from the person. The other thing is, um, 
you know, we've talked about a lot of different kind of strategies that are more developed. There's also things which I would call as kind of like mini retreat rituals you can do for yourself just to kind of put yourself in a better place. Uh, some examples of that is when you're driving into work, can you make an intention for yourself about how you want to be that day or how you want to approach that day? Maybe again, that pulls on your values of compassion. When the computer's uh, booting up, instead of multitasking and you know checking the phone or sending a text, can you take that time just to kind of like maybe take a few deep breaths to be able to relax yourself? And when you walk in through the doorway, can you use the doorway as kind of like a little reminder, you know, I want to see the good in people. I want to see the positive in them. And when the phone rings, instead of like immediately answering it on the first ring, can you give yourself like, I'm going to let it ring to three or four rings, and I'm going to say uh, a word uh, like peace or relax or a spiritual word or love before I pick up the phone and start interacting with, with the person. Um, also, I like to call the cigarette break for the soul, but some of my colleagues said that wasn't politically correct, so they made it a vitamin D break for the soul, but just to like step outside for like five minutes sometimes and just close your eyes and let the sun feel what, you know, the warmth of the sun on your face or the breeze um, coming through you and see what that, what that feels like. So, and the other thing is just think about, are there other things that you can do that are self-care, renewal strategies, talking to people, lots of times it's like somebody's like, oh yeah, I used to like to go to listen to music or play the guitar, but I've gotten so busy I forgot to do that, but I feel a lot better when I do that. Are there other things that you can do that help you to really do your best and give you renewal? Sometimes, um, you know, we don't have time to do that today, but sometimes it's, to, it's good to identify for yourself what's one thing you want to try. And if you could say that to someone, just to be able to verbalize it sometimes, the one thing you want to take away, one thing that you want to try. Um, can we each take maybe 10, 15 seconds and tell the person next to us one thing we want to try? So uh, finally, I'd like to just ask you, it's, um, it's about 12.08. I'd like to take maybe about two or three minutes just to do one final kind of like really brief exercise here just to end on. And if you're okay doing that, if one last time you could maybe close your eyes and get comfortable and take a deep breath. And as you do that, I would like you to imagine you're kind of a, at a bottom of a staircase. And at the top of this uh, staircase, there's someone or some being that has great love and support for you. Maybe it's a spiritual or religious figure, or maybe it's a family person you know who loves you deeply. But I'd like you to Imagine you're at the bottom of that staircase and you take the first step up that staircase. Take a breath. Take the next step up. And you take another step and you find that you're now in front of that person or being who is 
just really wants the best for you and is full of love and energy and and in your mind, you tell that person your passion, your dream that brought you into this work that you identified at the beginning of our time together. And you share with that person what your dream and your passion is for your work. And as you do that, imagine what you're getting back is just this deep, rich field of support and love and positive energy and understanding for you and for your dream and for the work that you want to do. And let that, let yourself just kind of take that in and feel that support and energy. Gather that in yourself. And when you're ready, turn back down that, to that staircase and take a step back, knowing that while you're physically leaving, that person or being is always there for you with love and support and understanding for you and for your dream. Take another step back down that staircase. Take, a, take another step and find yourself back in this room, knowing that you've got the energy and the support and the love to be able to follow your dreams and to be healthy as you do that. And keeping your eyes closed for a minute, if you can bring your hands up and put them just kind of in front of your mouth, cup cupping your hands kind of so that your hands are pointed out a little bit out yes and then now what I'd like you to do is just like a glass blower blows glass imagine you're going to blow into your hands and blow into your hands knowing that you are blowing your dreams out into your hands and give it a breath that you're blowing your dreams out into the world and best wishes to you as you follow your dreams out into the world. I've enjoyed spending the time with you today and what you've shared and wish you all the very best with your work. And, uh,